hope a peace committee. It will be the third standing committee to exist in international pen and the first to begin for probably 20 or 30 years, the other two committees being on translation and on behalf of writers in prison. Uh, the member countries of this committee are interesting, I think, and I will tell you who they are. Bulgaria, West Germany, East Germany, Iceland, Japan, the Netherlands, Sweden, Senegal, and this center. Uh, we will take, Galway and I will take uh, your thoughts and comments of this evening to Tokyo next month and bring back to you what happens there as a start to, as I said, what I hope is very meaningful work. Um, I want to particularly thank this evening Elise Petrini and uh, Linda Spencer for all the work they have done to pull it together. It is moderated by Robert J. Lifton, who is Foundation Research Professor of Psychology at Yale University. His most recent book is Indefensible Weapons. Robert Lifton will introduce the panel. Thank you. important that we're all here tonight. Uh, my own concerns about nuclear weapons were heightened by six months uh, that my wife and I spent in Hiroshima in 1962. And you see these crane lays, which my wife, Betty Jean Lifton, literally just brought back from Hiroshima, from which she returned last night from a brief visit. These are crane lays, and they are part of a legend in Hiroshima of Sadako Sasaki, who is the Anne Frank figure in Hiroshima, a child who died at the age of 13 after having been exposed to the bomb at the age of two, having had delayed radiation effects, uh, leukemia, and then folding paper cranes in connection with the Japanese legend that if one folds a thousand paper cranes, one is cured of all of one's ills. The legend goes she got up to 946 and then died. After her death, a monument was erected to Sadako in the Peace Park, which is always garlanded with cranes. And that monument is always uh, attended to by children who visit it all the time. In Hiroshima, the first thing I discovered was that 17 years after the bomb had fallen, nobody had really studied what had happened there. So I developed a rule of thumb. The more important historical event the less likely it is to be studied or addressed. We're trying to alter that situation here tonight. I also found in Hiroshima that it was very difficult for people to absorb what happened there, including artists and writers. I talked to many artists and writers in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they would say, we feel we must write about this subject, but we feel it's impossible. And in a way, that's some of the dilemma that we all have. Impossible or difficult, because it is not easy to take the liberty as a writer, as one must as a writer, to re-symbolize, that is to recast an event in one's own terms, uh, an event of that kind. And Hiroshima, of course, was just a tiny bomb by present standards. Since Hiroshima, we live with the image of extinguishing ourselves as a species with our own technology, by our own hand, and to no purpose. That image in its entirety is a new image in the world. Now, one can say that we're just learning to ask what that image is doing to us. 
And a, a rule of thumb here, or a model, is that on the one hand, since we still have our nitty-gritty everyday concerns uh, with love and work and money and success and all the things people care about, there's no single pattern of behavior that's caused by the bomb. On the other hand, there's nothing we do or plan that's unaffected by this shadow. As to the panel now tonight, what the panel has in common, I think, is that they're all serious, accomplished writers. Otherwise, they differ enormously in their genres in which they write and in whether they have written on this subject or taken a public stand about it. Our procedure tonight, since it's the Passover season, I'll be asking, and I'm the youngest in the room, of course, I'll be asking <laughs> questions, just three questions. Each panelist will speak for five minutes uh, in response to those questions, but really in response to what he or she wishes to say about this issue. Uh, and then there'll be give and take from the audience, questions, uh, responses, and some discussion among panelists. Incidentally, we consider this event tonight a kind of preparation and warm-up for a larger event which Penn hopes to put on in the fall, which will be a full day or more, including workshops on this same issue. Okay, now for the questions, um, and they're the obvious ones, and yet they're very primal and very basic. The first is really the question that forms the title of, of this evening, and that is, is there or should there be a cultural or intellectual response to the threat of the nuclear end? I use that word advisedly. We're beginning to use that word in the doctor's movement for obvious reasons. The second question, if so, how might one respond to that threat as a writer? And third, does the nature of the threat in any significant way alter the writer's task? That is, or change the context from which one writes? Well, those are the questions easy, more easily laid out than answered but they at least give us uh, a starting point from which to proceed. The sequence of the panel will be as you see us seated here, so that uh, our first panelist will be Francine de Plessix-Gray, and as you know, Francine is a novelist and essayist, and her most recent novel is World Without End. Francine. Thank you, Bob. Um, I'd like to just address two themes which are tangential to Bob Lifton's questions and which I hope can serve as um, themes for the general discussion. One is that of what we have come to call anomy, anomy in the face of nuclear threat, and the other theme is the particular difficulties different kinds of artists face in addressing the nuclear threat. Uh, to begin with the theme of anime, I would like to read a, the opening paragraph from Joan Didion's very latest novel, Democracy, which has just been currently published. It goes this way. The light at dawn during those specific tests was something to see, something to behold, something that could almost make you think you saw God, he said. He said to her. He said... The sky was this pink no painter could approximate 
one of the detonation theorists used to try a pretty fair Sunday painter, he never got it, just never captured it, never came close. The sky was the pink and the air was wet from the night rain, smelling like those flowers you used to pin in your hair when you drove out to Schofield Barracks. Gardenias, the air in the morning smelled like gardenias. Never mind, there were not too many flowers around those shot islands. They were just atolls, most of them, sand spits, actually. So there you have it in a nutshell, um, the description of the almost godlike, deity-like quality of the nuclear event, uh, something which, as the protagonist says, that could almost make you think you saw God, a splendor so great that no man can capture it in paint or presumably in words. And second and even more important, the total lack of moral response to this event on the part of the protagonist, who turns out to be the hero, one of the, the male hero, the male protagonist of the book, the sense that it lies beyond our moral judgment, that we are helpless before its awesome force. Uh, the novel that follows is in tone with the moral flatness of the opening chapter. And I'm not here to pass a value judgment on this very technically brilliant novel, only to say that no writer of Didion's skills could ever forge an opening paragraph like that, which was meant to be uh, the theme of the whole novel. And the novel is true to the theme. It presents a world in which all possibility of love and responsibility are abolished, even at the mo most primal levels, maternal, paternal, mar marital, filial love, are denied and are obliterated by the psychic numbing of our time, are as flattened in effect, as the bombs flatten those atolls. What scared me even more than my inability to perceive whether Didion was presenting us with an enemy on which he was passing a value judgment, to what degree the presentation of enemy can in itself be a political statement or to what degree she feels it is too late in history to pass judgment upon the enemy caused by the nuclear threat. What scared me much more is that of the two reviews I've read of the book, one a measured praise, the other a vicious attack, no mention is made of the theme of the nuclear threat. No mention is made of this opening chap of this opening paragraph. And the uh, one cannot tell whether the reviewers are uh, subconsciously motivated by or silenced by their numbing or consciously avoiding the pain and difficulty of discussing the nuclear issue. Um, both Reviewers concentrate their discussion, rather like the scientists at Los Alamos, on technique, on the author's technique, on the pros and cons of her use of flashback, of author's voice, of tone, of metaphor, of irony. 
So I'll leave it to the panel and the audience to discuss um, what are the ramifications of this very current event. Um, my next comment just has to do with the fact that I find there's a terrific hierarchy of difficulties uh, presented to the practitioners of different kinds of creative arts when they are motivated to make any political statement. And paradoxically, I think that the more abstract medium, the easier it is to make a political statement. Uh, you take Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony, which was, uh, using being the most abstract, the most uh, removed from daily discourse. And um, he had to name it, that, that the abstract painter, like Motherwell, uh, naming a series of paintings, Elegy for the Spanish Republic. An abstract painter like Bonnet Newman, naming a series called um, The uh, Station of the Cross, which he might as well have named Elegy to the Dead of Auschwitz. It is up to the abstract artist in either music or painting to um, name it what he wants to name it, and the world has to take it that way. It is therefore easier for them to deal with political issues, and this is very paradoxical because they are, their medium is so much more abstract. Seems to me that in literature, the same hierarchy of difficulties were, uh, uh, is observed, that it might be easier for the poet because his language is the most distilled and the, the furthest away from the diction of daily discourse. Seems to me that Allen Ginsberg's Howell was more prophetic of the horrors we are presently living through than any work of fiction created in, America, in the United States in the past uh, 30 or 40 years. And um, I think that the novelists, therefore, are at the bottom of the, rather at the top of the hierarchy of difficulties that we are having, we will have the most difficult time integrating uh, this uh, political reality into our art if we do not want our art to fall into propaganda, which is always the terrible issue for the verbal arts, for verbal discourse, is to fall into the trap of social realism, which is imposed on writers in the Iron Curtain. And when we fall into the side of ideology dominating our form, we have lost our efficacy as artists and also as political animals. So I'm only saying that I think it is the greatest difficulty for the uh, uh, novelist and the short story writer more than perhaps, therefore, the poet, the painter, or, the abs or, the, or particularly the musician. And I shall only end with the thought that the nuclear threat has become a kind of demonic force which is much more difficult to, even more difficult to portray in fiction than earlier social ills were of Dickens' dimensions, and that perhaps parable and allegory are the only ways in which it has been really presented and when they've been able to remain works of art. I'm thinking, of course, of Orwell's Animal Farm and 84, presented in the form of parables. And they're the last great works of art I can think of which also have that powerful a political message. Um, it, has it has become, the size of the problem has become as great as the, 
problem of presenting the devil in literature, which has always been a considerable problem, which I think only Dostoevsky and Thomas Mann have been able to do, but uh, we might remember that in Thomas Mann's novel, Dr. Faustus, the devil only comes in the form of an allegorical parody, and it comes in the form of an art critic. Our next panelist will be Galway Cannell, who, as you know, is president of this organization, uh, American Pen Center, but we'll treat him as well as everybody else anyhow. His uh, selected poems in 1983 won the American Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize. Galway. <clears throat> Thank you, Bob. Can you hear me all right? I just want to say a few words about the response of poetry to uh, what Bob has called the nuclear end. <clears throat> Alas, it has been um, rather limited. It's, this is because I think that um, poets, just like everybody else, have uh, suppressed uh, uh, thoughts about this subject, and no wonder, because it is a subject that the more you think about, the more um, hopeless you become about. But um, I think knowledge, of course, um, not only in, in the society, but also among poets, knowledge of this uh, prospect is sinking in. It might be thought of as bitter knowledge, the consequence of a second fall, uh, which occurred at uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, and similar to the knowledge that the individual dies, which Adam and Eve acquired at the first fall. Um, I think that the, when this does happen, when, when this bitter knowledge enters our poetry fully, it will change its character. Um, one will hear it in the voice of the poem and it will be so pervasive in the mood of the poem that it will be as if it is the paper on which the poem is written. Um, should that happen, then even the most private poem about the most private joy or happiness will not be a private poem, but will actually address this issue. Um, I think that technically speaking, poetry at that point will change too. Uh, for one thing, the da dum da dum da dum da dum of conventional poetry will seem uh, like wishful thinking, like a desire to impose an order that has disappeared. The box of the conventional uh, stanza in set rhyme will not hold this grotesquely shaped understanding very well. Uh, and the same is true for free verse, that the, the, Whitman, the, Whit, the Whitmanian or Whitmanesque cadences of free verse will seem too self-satisfied and complacent. The common speech of uh, contemporary free verse uh, will not be able to raise this uh, already very prosaic subject into poetry, and the poem will look just like chopped up prose. And in fact, the sloppiness of contemporary free verse uh, probably will uh, cause 
free verse to collapse just under the weight of this heavy understanding. Um, the, um, the stanzas of formal verse perhaps seem like uh, gardens in which one might seek escape under the presence of the bomb. Uh, <clears throat> free verse two is a victim of the bomb, a victim already, <clears throat> because um, young poets ask, why should I make my poem to last forever, uh, to last until the end of time, when that may be within a generation or two? It's a very good question. Um, I don't know if one should write about um, this subject in poetry. In fact, I think with regard to poetry, should, um, shouldn't be used. Uh, but I do believe that it would be humiliating for anybody who lived by the word to acquiesce in the prospect of a nuclear end in silence. Uh, and therefore, I believe we will see poetry take up this question uh, very much in the future. It's even possible that poetry might shed some light on it um, if it addresses the question directly, such as <clears throat> what has gone wrong inside the human being that the human being now wishes to, um, appears to be on the verge of suicide? Surely whatever it is in the, in the general psyche of the, of the species also is visible in the psyche of any individual. Uh, <clears throat> also, it may, be, it may be possible to see, to look into that common assumption that's made, uh, which is that um, everything is the same. Our ways of behaving are the same. Our ways of thinking uh, are the same. What has happened is suddenly the bomb has entered upon the scene, as though it were snatched from heaven by a demigod. Uh, the Promethean fallacy, I call it. And it might be possible that poetry could pursue the uh, Faustian notion that the human race, at least uh, in the West, has pursued power through knowledge in exchange for the future. Uh, as far as form goes, um, form in poetry is not rhyme and meter. That's one aspect of form, perhaps the least of it. Form is is the power to make that vehicle by which the understanding of a poem will be carried forward. And in that sense, free verse may be as formal as any formal verse of the past. Um, demoralized as it is now, I think free verse will become much more formal once this subject is no longer suppressed, which is the source of the demoralization, and faced. Um, Right now, one rushes into a bookstore, seizes a literary magazine off the shelf, uh, opens it up and reads a poem call it, which calls for more life, but the poem is so badly written, you feel it rotting in your hands as you read it. Um, form is the, um, is the rug that the poem that lacks it pulls, from out, uh, pulls out from under the future. Uh, form expresses both hope and courage, and in that sense, it's not decorative, but basic. Thanks very much. Our next panel.
panelist, Arthur Coppett, who's a playwright, and his most recent play, End of the World with Symposium to Follow, uh, sounds pretty much like our evening tonight. In fact, maybe we could just take that title, uh, meditate on it for a moment, and all go home. In any case, that play is uh, now in Washington, as I understand it, and will be in New York very shortly. Arthur. I, I, I'm going to uh, briefly try to tell you what my experience was, because it has been directly with this issue uh, for the past three years, and uh, came up against the, uh, the problems, I think, that we're dealing with uh, as a playwright, but I think as any writer. I was, of all things, commissioned by a man, a man, uh, a man named Leonard Davis. Uh, I was teaching playwriting at City College, and I suddenly heard that a man was looking for a playwright to write a play based on a scenario he had conceived. It was a charming notion. I don't know any playwright who's ever done this, uh, but as a favor to him, and because I did this for students all the time, discussed what makes a play and what doesn't, I thought I would listen to his scenario. I'll move through this very quickly. He had a scenario based on nuclear proliferation. It was a kind of science fiction uh, uh, affair, and was just filled with all sorts of problems. But I became interested in the idea of whether one could write anything, any play that dealt squarely with this issue. The one thing that Leonard wanted was to have a play that, that in a sense, educated the audience, that you came across the information, uh, that you came out knowing more than when you'd come in. So I, I said to Leonard that I would, I would work on, on this uh, to the extent that I was curious to know whether there was, were certain themes which, by definition, were undramatizable. Here was material that had urgency, had, could have certainly a central character, the entire human race. Uh, it had uh, the stakes, the destruction. It had everything that drama should have, but it seemed to me it had too much that it was, by definition, an overload. It was unbelievable, uh, even though it was believable. How did you make this subject credible to an audience? How could they identify with it? So I began to do research. And at that point, three years ago, did not know very much more, I suppose, than anyone did. I knew quite a bit, but not anything. What I soon found out in reading books like The Prompt and Delayed Effects of Thermonuclear Explosions, uh, having a background as a scientist, uh, I was able to deal at least with the physics and the and, and that part of it, as well as uh, Herman Kahn, and everything. Uh, well, it was a, I was supposed to turn in something to uh, Leonard Davis. But meanwhile, I was having a series of lunches uh, with Davis, who was, who was uh, uh, one of the Fortune 400 uh, at places like La Cote Basque in New York, in which uh, experts from Washington, who, uh, physicists and, and political experts, would join me at lunch, to my regret, because they were dealing with what happens when a nuclear bomb goes off, stuff that Bob Lipton and the Physicians for Social Responsibility, uh, Jack Geiger, have dealt with. But people at other tables were just asking to be moved. So they couldn't listen to this. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it's you know, you find out that it's true, uh, what in fact happens. But, well, I was supposed to turn in something to Davis because that was the contract, and I just didn't know what to do. I had a lot of material that was interesting in a kind of Saturday Night Live sketch, but you couldn't go beyond it. And there were certain people involved in the hardline movement, uh, the T.K. Jones's, uh, the, the, the FEMA reports on how one evacuates uh, New York City, uh, for example, which are hysterically funny, uh, and, but, but that seemed to trivialize the issue, and as I later found out in my research down in Washington, that even the people around Reagan were embarrassed by the, the, the loony fringe 
uh, the FEMA was, was as embarrassing to them as it was to uh, anybody else. And, and I didn't know what to do, and I was, of course, getting uh, more deeply, deeply depressed by this uh, issue and was unable to look squarely at my children uh, or my wife, and the deadline approached, and my wife, one night, having the easier of it, was lying next to me reading Blake, uh, a much better assignment. I was reading Herman Kahn, she was reading Blake, and I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, uh, universe in a grain of sand. And I said, oh, come on, honey. You know. She said, write about what you've been going through, that's all. And I said, you don't know how good that idea is. And I called Davis and I said, that's what I'll do. I can write about avoidance, which seemed to me to be at the heart of the issue. What I could do was I couldn't write about the end of everything, but I could write about what it was like to need money as a playwright, what it was like to be a writer, to confront this. I could certainly deal with Davis's scenario within this frame, and on that level I could approach this. Davis agreed, although he didn't think I was serious. I said, I'm gonna write about me, I'm gonna write about you. Very briefly, what happened was that at that point, because now, so it wasn't should, but could. Could I write about it? Uh, there were certain um, givens that I set myself in this, uh, which was that it could not be a polemic, that if the play was to be effective, it, it was not a, a, an editorial, it, that the issue was too serious to be belittled as art by propaganda. And therefore, nobody should come out and know exactly what I felt on any issue, and the play shouldn't be current. What began to happen at that point that I now had the commission was that I, be, I thought, I can't deal with this night after night. Who are the people who think about this every night, and particularly think about the need for more weapons? Who are the people who say the freeze is no good, the freeze is the worst thing that can happen to us, that we need the MX, the Cruise, the Trident too? Uh, what are these people like? So I began. I said, if I'm going to write this play, what I mustn't do is invent, I must discover. And, and I then set out to meet what I called the best of breed, of the hardliners. And, I, and they were very happy to meet me because I, I, I said to them, look, this is what I feel. I don't, it doesn't make any sense. If you want to stop, if, if no one wants a nuclear war, why don't you just stop right now? Everybody seems to agree that, relatively speaking, neither the Russians nor us can attack the others. Why are we moving forward? They said, well, we'll explain to you. I said, what I want to do is I'm going to come back to you day after day. Uh, I got two 800s on my college boards. If I can't figure out what you're talking about, something's wrong, okay? They said, fine. I said, I'm ready to be converted. I would like nothing better than to go back to my wife and say, these guys know what they're doing. Terrific. Let's go out and play tennis. And it was that pursuit that began to alter the play, which, so the play has ended up as a kind of Maltese falcon. I, I tape recorded everything because not so much to, to use their exact words as to make sure that I did not ever violate what I was hearing. I then refined and compressed. And I found the first thing that astonished me, then it became another year to figure out how to handle this material, because I found something that I hadn't expected. I, I asked to see the people who were not crazy, the people who had been the Rhodes Scholars, who were now working on the issue, who were in fact, many of them, as, almost as terrified as Reagan as I was, but still, confrontation with the Soviet Union. Soviet Union is the menace. What do we do? I expected to find them very lugubrious and, and, and doer and, and a somber situation. In fact, it was quite the opposite. These guys loved their jobs. These guys couldn't wait to get to work in the morning. They were enthusiasts. And it was that enthusiasm that brought me to several other perceptions. I'm not going to go into that because it's been three years and I've written the play. I found things that I hadn't expected within it. And it seemed that that if art is going to deal with this, you have to go into yourself and you have to find your link to these people. They weren't mad. 
They didn't want a nuclear war any more than I did. But some of them, it's very frightening. And you see in a, in a paper in Washington about Reagan and Falwell, the belief that, in fact, the end may be foreordained, uh, preordained. That as a Christian, if you're a true believer, the moment before the bombs hit, you go up to heaven in something called a rapture. If you're in the car and you're a Christian, you leave your clothes behind. Uh, so, uh, so if there are non-Christians in the car, the car will crash because there's nobody at the wheel. And they ascend. And apparently, uh, Reagan has gone on record and, and believes this, that, that it may be our Christian duty not to avoid uh, an Armageddon. What I began to concentrate on, finally, is the allure of it. And that's what I found, that it's not neutral. I found that what I perceived was, in fact, perceived even by the hard line, which was that the system didn't work. It was fundamentally flawed. There's a, there's a statement in my play that the central character says what he finds at the end is that this breakdown is built into the system. That he says what you've got is a, a fail-safe built-in breakdown machine. <laughs> and I thought this was my recognition. I couldn't understand. I'm smart, but these guys are just as smart. How come I'm the only one who sees it? And he said, no, everybody sees it. So the real question that I pursued was, if everybody sees that the system doesn't work, why are they still working on it? And that became a kind of Faustian adventure for me, blocking the play for months. I had a lunch with Jonathan Shell, in which I said to Jonathan, how did you work on your book for three years? He said, not with much, you know, not uh, with great difficulty. And I said, how many times were you thrilled by the possibility of the end? And he said, all the time. In any case, I think that the obligation of the writer is not to belittle the issue, not to say that they are crazy and evil. The people on the other side don't want it to happen, but there's something going on. And I think the obligation of the writer also is to educate yourself so that you don't belittle it by sentimentalizing. Don't they care about the children? Of course they care about the children. You'll get wiped out in debate with these guys. It's too easy. Uh, I think that there's a certain level of education about what these weapons are, what these things do, very few people know the elegance, the sweetness of these new weapon systems, these weapons that zigzag through the air. They, very few people know exactly what the Pershing II will do. It's quite phenomenal. It doesn't just get there six minutes. It's taking a course like this and backing up. So on the level, I think if writers are going to write about it, not necessarily in poetry, but are going to write in fiction, you've got to prepare yourself for being knocked aside because you don't understand the issue. It's very easy to understand it get to a certain level of sophistication. There's enough material out to find out. But um, it's quite astonishing. And, and uh, anyway. OK. Thanks, Arthur. Our next panelist, Grace Paley, uh, short story writer. And her recent collections are the Little Disturbances of Man and Enormous Changes at the Last Minute. Grace. I have to ask Arthur a question first. Um, uh, when you said Jonathan Shell was coming, he was thrilled by the end of the article? Or no, 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 no. But, but Jonathan, in dealing with the material day after day, writing yeah. The, uh, yeah. uh, uh, his book, his, his, his pieces, did he deal, was he ever aware of, of the thrill that it might all be over? That's what I meant. That, in fact, the, the worst would happen. What was the emotional response to that? Because I began to think, I began to see the attractiveness of it all. And that's what he responded to. Yes, he had to handle that all the time. Well, I just know as a death wish, Grace. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I can hardly speak here today. I have, I'm, my whole body feels what you said. I mean, my arms and all of me. I guess I, 
I guess I never will feel that. Uh, but it may be that I'm uh, that I'm closer to the end than you. <laughs> you, know, you know, I, I hope nobody and misunderstood. It doesn't mean that anybody wants it, Jonathan. No, no. You know, I mean, you know, yeah, Jonathan, we know he's on our it. side, right? It isn't, it isn't that one wants it. You recognize that yeah. it's not neutral. Well, okay. Uh, I don't. I still don't see it. I don't think I ever will. Um, but Maybe that's okay. No, no. It's just, everybody is blind a little, and that's my blindness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess it, it, talking about about how to how to deal with all of this is uh, uh, as a writer is uh, really hard for me in a way because I I deal with it a lot as not a writer and uh, 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 nearly every, nearly every day uh, I uh, I I uh, uh, think in terms of what of, of what I'm going to do not particularly as a writer but as me. Uh, person on the block away from here uh, and who goes to school with a lot of young people and uh, so so that that's on my mind a lot uh, uh, I'll tell you the truth I really wish I could write a really good piece of propaganda uh, I really wish I could I wish I could write really something and I think that uh, no matter no matter what it was uh, that would uh, um, uh, speak to people for this minute, even, and 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 if it didn't live forever, I you know I'd feel bad to tell you the truth, but I wouldn't be there anyway, so I wouldn't notice it so much. Uh, but but uh, but uh, you know, but I, I have as as much feeling as all of us here for li for for having uh, some sort of um, eternal uh, literary life. But 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 imagine the joy of. Uh, of being able to write, for instance, uh, or, or my joy at any rate, doesn't have to be anybody else's, uh, for me to be able to write uh, a couple of leaflets or flyers or something like that that I could give out on a street that would really have some effect. And people do that, you know, quite uh, not writing people. I, I admit that most of them are terrible, and uh, they're not terrible for literary reasons. Some of them are terrible for their typing, you know. But, but, but to be able to give that, to give information out and to speak to people directly in that way. And maybe that's what we have to think in terms of doing. We have to think not only in terms of the way we write, but in the way, we have to think of the way we speak to people, the way we, the, the, the places that we address them, the, uh, the, uh, the, the halls, the uh, street corners, um, and, and then I'll tell you another thing. They're speaking to us all the time. When we think about who we should speak to, uh, I, I think it's, it's really interesting uh, to talk to these guys, you know? But I think I have their number. I don't want to hurt their feelings or anything. But, uh, it's, it, but I, I mean, I've seen that kind of boy grow up. Uh, he's very smart in school, and he gets smarter and smarter. Times had an awful good article on them, which explained them very well. Uh, they're crazy about solving problems, and that's the allure. That's the fun of it. That's it, and that's the only thing that counts. And I've seen it happen uh, on many different levels. And that's what they're up to. They're up to being smarter and smarter. And, uh, and, uh, and there is that. I mean, you feel that yourself when you're writing, when you're, when you're doing a difficult thing. And I, so that I'm not knocking it all together. You, ha you come to something and it's so hard to say. You have, a, you have this problem, you, you, you really, you, 
the joy of working at it and solving it is a wonderful, that's a great thing. But, uh, uh, but to see it happen in terms of those guys, and they're mostly guys, I have to say that, hope, don't, don't want to hurt your feelings, but uh, I have to say it, they are, and, they, and, uh, and that's what they're up to. Uh, so I, I would not talk to them. For me, I think I know them. Who I would like to hear from, I would like to talk to people who are specifically fighting all this stuff. I would like to talk to people who are in, in, uh, in groups and in movements, and in they exist, you know, and if you write about them, maybe it's not propaganda, because they're real, they're just as real. That's the thing, they're just as real as all these big shots who are running around telling, uh, uh, making a lot of money and getting more and more successful every day as they think of a new thing that's, that's gonna be worse tomorrow, you know? So I, I just, I, I would just, um, I, I would just say, who do we, what do we write about and who do we listen to and who do we speak to? For my part, I, I, I speak to people in different, in different groups and I haven't even written about them yet. I mean, in dealing with, with, uh, with, the, uh, with this whole business of the atom bomb, which includes, after all, wars which will lead to that, like, 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 uh, like uh, uh, Gatling guns being manufactured in Burlington, I mean, conventional weapons which will lead us to this, you know, we haven't even touched that, or, or uh, the mining of, of the harbors of Nicaragua, I mean, all of that. I'd like to talk, and I mean to talk always, to people who are fighting that, who are dealing with it, and I think you can write a good story, novel, poem, anything about different kinds of human beings. There are human beings that are simply not being written about. I see them in different movements. I see them in the women's movement. I, they're, not, they're really not being written about. Uh, I see them, I, see, I, I saw them in the anti-nuke movement of, of the, a few years ago when they were being mocked and, 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 uh, and, and treated by, by, not just by the right, but by the left as a bunch of dumb kids. Those are all people that, to me, are, are very interesting, and they, I'd like to know what they're up to. What are they thinking about? Because, because they're more bewildered. They're really more bewildered than these scientists, and therefore, therefore they're more interesting because they, they, they're running this way and they're running that way, and they, don't, they sometimes don't look good, you know? But they, they seem to me interesting. Uh, and so I would like to, to be able to write about them. I would like to be able to write good legal stuff. I would write, like to write great works and live forever. I would like the world to live forever, so if I don't write a great work that lives forever, because of that, it's okay. Uh, I want us to go on and on. Thanks, Grace. You've heard a really, uh, as I can feel up here, a powerful series of comments, and there are two more to come. Uh, I feel I want to kind of uh, intersperse a little story here, just to uh, perhaps encourage us a bit. Uh, there are no jokes about this, much too serious, but there are stories. And this is a story with a certain ethnic cast. It's about three men who meet outside the consulting room of a famous physician. It's a medical story, you can see. Each being told he has but three weeks to live. Uh, one of them is French, one is English, and the third, you might have guessed it, is a Jew. Uh, they're discussing how they're going to spend their precious remaining three weeks. Uh, 
And the Frenchman says, well, of course, I'm going to spend it in erotic pleasure with my mistress. How else should one spend one's last three weeks? And the Englishman says, well, I'm going to spend it at my home in the country with my beloved horses and dogs. <laughs> and, they turn, and they turn to the Jew and say, well, you haven't said anything. Uh, how are you going to spend your precious remaining three weeks? And he thinks for a moment and then answers, I'm going to get a second opinion. <laughs> Our next panelist, uh, that's what we're offering here. <laughs> Jane Ann Phillips is a novelist and short story writer. Her most recent book is Machine Dreams. Jane Ann. I don't have anything specifically to say about literature because I don't think we can afford at this point to discuss literature in isolation. So I just have a few opinions and uh, sort of a view of a few facts that I'm just tossing out in hopes that uh, you will have something to say about them. I think perhaps we can't imagine nuclear annihilation because we can't imagine death. Death is a sort of foreign dimension, a far country in our minds. None of us has actually been to that country. We've heard stories and imagined stories, but none of us can bear witness. As a culture, a world culture, we seem to have accepted the presence of nuclear arsenals as we individually accept the fact that somewhere death exists. Those few human beings who can bear witness to Hiroshima, to Nagasaki, cannot begin to bear witness to the enormity of the threat now facing us. In our continued acceptance of the nuclear threat, we seem to accept annihilation as inevitable. The sad fact is that for most of us gathered here, the question is not whether nuclear weapons threaten our extinction, but whether another approach is possible. I assume that it is agreed in this room that there is no defense, civil or otherwise, against nuclear extinction if nuclear weapons are used. We are probably agreed that even the production of these weapons comprises an active poisoning of the Earth. We are probably agreed that the era of armaments must end. But even though we are agreed upon all these things, we are governed by officials who at this moment believe wholeheartedly in the domino theory. Our government pursues and has pursued since the Second World War a foreign policy based not on the tenets of our own constitution, government for, by, and of the people, but on whether or not governments to be supported are conservative enough to act in what our government feels are our economic interests. Many of our elected officials still subscribe to the slogan, better dead than red, and some of our military do maintain that, in fact, a tactical nuclear war can be fought and won. We've just heard that the Reagan administration plans to, quote, push ahead with development and testing of an anti-satellite weapon for use in space and does not plan to seek a comprehensive ban on such weapons with the Soviet Union, end quote. Only life itself measures what would be lost if life were lost. It's another ironic fact that pine trees, those trees so long the symbols of a festival pagan in origin and now celebrated as Christmas, as redemption, are the most sensitive trees on Earth. Lethal doses of radiation for pine trees are roughly the same as for mammals. <coughs> the evergreens will die with us. Another ironic fact. There was a mid-1960s incident in which US radar mistook the rising of the moon for a missile attack. It was a 1979 mishap in which a computer with a practiced Soviet missile attack tape on it was accidentally introduced into an operating missile warning system. There was a 1980 incident in which a microchip failed on a computer at Strategic Air Command headquarters in Omaha, and the B-52s almost took off. <coughs> Freeman Dyson maintains in Weapons and Hope that PGMs may be the answer to the B-52s. PGMs are precision-guided precision munitions, 
small, accurate missiles with non-nuclear warheads designed to put offensive nuclear weapons out of action. Dyson uh, imagines, quote, smart little non-nuclear rockets killing nuclear missiles. He hopes that the computer revolution can transform war into a contest of information rather than brute force. He hopes that those running the nuclear arms race might be convinced that a small, compact, non-nuclear weapon might make nuclear weapons obsolete, that is, a bad economic investment. I agree with Dyson about the priorities of the nuclear powers, but I hate to depend on PGMs or the government's willingness to deploy less expensive, less dangerous weapons. We can't simply trust this government or any government to govern well, and our lives are at stake. We see the same governmental attitude expressed on any number of fronts. Even peacetime use of nuclear power, as utility companies are beginning to realize, will in the long run be more expensive than use of other sources of power or research which would yield those other sources. Love Canal was extremely expensive, and every nuclear power plant shut down because of faulty construction, shoddy maintenance, or more awareness on the part of the public will be extremely expensive. Radioactive waste from these plants or from the construction of nuclear weapons will prove, in its longevity and its abundance and by its deadly endurance, most expensive of all. Timber companies and public agencies continue to spray herbicides like 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T, the same chemicals known as Agent Orange in Vietnam, because these chemicals are a quick and effective method of killing roadside weeds. They also kill us, but slowly. There is increasing evidence that what amounts to an epidemic of cancer in this country is related to environmental sources. Despite the use of $10 billion in funds over the past 10 years, the General Accounting Office of Congress informs us that we are demonstrably no closer to a cancer cure than we were 10 years ago. Samuel Epstein, professor of occupational medicine at the University of Illinois, says that cancer is not a scientific problem but a political issue. According to the American Cancer Society, one-third of us will get cancer and one-quarter of us will die from it. The smoking of cigarettes may be a personal issue, but EDP is not. The simple fact is that preventive medicine, and I consider the nuclear freeze preventive medicine, would result in some economic problems and a shakeup of cancer-causing industries. Virtually all these industries, including the weapons industry, represent profitable business interests. It's routine for executive officers of cancer-causing companies to sit on the decision-making boards of government research agencies, cancer charities, cancer hospitals, resulting in the discouragement of prevention research. In a recent case, Reagan appointed Armand Hammer as chairman of the National Cancer Advisory Board with responsibility for the overall direction of the cancer war. Hammer is chairman and president of Occidental Petroleum, which owns Hooker Chemical, notorious for its indiscriminate dumping of cancer-causing waste, including in Love Canal. So we have Armand Hammer directing the war on cancer. We have Henry Kissinger and George Shultz directing the war on Nicaragua. And we have Ronald Reagan directing or non-directing arms controls talks with the Soviets as he pushes ahead with plans for nuclear weapons in space. We are now governed by a government which covertly mined the harbors of Nicaragua as a holding action until Reagan's re-election. Reagan's stated plan is to then pour vast sums of money into his covert CIA-directed war, and it should be obvious that he hopes to provoke the Sandinista government into, into some act that Reagan can use as justification to commit U.S. troops. The Reagan administration has rather skillfully manipulated strongly held fears that are pervasive in this country, but this is not a time for nationalism and isolation. It's a time to think in terms of the planet. Statements that the Soviets are inherently evil warmongers bent on world domination are useless 
and such opinions are no excuse for Reagan, for Reagan administration tactics increasingly identical to those of communist bloc countries. Reagan has forced the emerging nations of South America into stronger and stronger ties with the Soviets based on the faulty reasoning that these nations are exporting revolution to one another. He seems to have forgotten that a revolution took place in this country a mere 200 years ago, a, re a revolution fought to throw off the yoke of foreign domination and the economic monopoly held by foreign investors. To come back to specifics, I think there is a cultural intellectual response to the threat of nuclear end, and that response has been going on in literature and film at least since 1957, the publication of On the Beach. But I think our response at this crucial time must reach beyond discussion into political action, voter registration, grassroots organization around nuclear issues, and electoral defeat of officials, principally Ronald Reagan, who don't consider serious arms control a highest priority. I think writers, at bottom, write from a primal instinct to save what we love, to hold it in abeyance, to see it from within, to make it seen. Culturally, we function as aberration. Imagination is always aberrant with its descent into what is most fearful. A Russian, Gorky, said that the madness of the brave is the wisdom of life. The madness of the arms race is the wisdom of nothingness. And the madness of a 1950s nationalist approach <coughs> to the threat of world extinction is the wisdom of a doomed species. And we hope the wisdom of a doomed presidency. Thanks very much. And our final panelist, uh, Ted Salatarov, editor and essayist. And a recent book of his is Many Windows, 23 Stories from American Review. Ted. Uh, this is not my first panel on this subject. Grace and I seem to meet once a year or so on such an occasion. Uh, and up till now, my, my pitch has pretty much been that writers should pay a lot more attention in their writing, in their art, to the subject of nuclear extinction. And I, I tend to, um, to sort of aim my position directly at Francine's uh, that, you know, artists have to, first of all, be very careful uh, not, not to, uh, to write propaganda. I would agree with Grace that, uh, that you know, really good propaganda um, uh, can, can be very effective. And also that, that the prop propagandistic element is the risk that that art takes in, in getting into this subject. Uh, and every artistic subject comes with a risk. Uh, as far as, you know, uh, socialist realism and all that, um, I think it's kind of one of those assumptions that are like 40, 50 years old now about, you know, came out of the 30s and the 40s. And the, the, the great uh, predicament of American writing today is not that it's going to lapse into Stalinism or socialist realism. It's, it's really that it's going to remain irrelevant to <laughs> the issues that are on, you know, most people's minds and indeed on the agenda of the race itself. <coughs> so uh, my, my position is up till now, been writers should write about the nuclear arms race. Um, but as I began to uh, rework that position for tonight, um, a kind of voice intervened and said, um, you know, uh, Ted, your years of working as an editor 
have sort of taught you that about the most useless and, and indeed stupid word in an editor's vocabulary is the word should. Uh, to say this is what uh, you uh, should write, this is the way you should write it, um, etc., is to make two assumptions or rather presumptions. Uh, one, that you know better than the writer, uh, and two, that when he knows what you know, i.e. that once you put him straight, that he then can write about this effectively. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about large matters of conception rather than you know, small matters of detail and style. What usually turns out is that the writer at one time or another has had your conception, but turned it down because he couldn't make it work. As for the alternative term in our title, whether our culture should or should not respond to the threat of a nuclear end, uh, the term should not um, is not even a literary position at all, but rather a political one. And I think I'll just leave that to the Cold Warriors to defend. So rather than talk should, I'd rather in good editorial fashion talk can. Uh, it seems to me that there has been more of a response in the past few years <coughs> to the threat of the nuclear end than has been true for the past 30 years. That is, since the response to Hiroshima right at, you know, right at that time and for a couple of years thereafter. Matthew Arnold once said that a quickening and sustaining atmosphere of fresh thought is the true basis for the creative powers exercise. And I think that this quickening and sustaining atmosphere of fresh thought about the nuclear issue uh, is coming to pass. There's been the nuclear freeze movement in recent years, the Green Party in Germany, the growing awareness both in Europe and America of the accelerating craziness of the arms race, which is bearing out R.D. Lang's prophecy that before we can blow up this planet, we must first drive ourselves mad. <clears throat> Along with the campaigns and the demonstrations, I call your attention to what was going on in New York and across the country uh, only 10 months ago, uh, the June 12th um, event. There have also been an influential outcropping of books such as Jonathan Shell's, uh, of Bob Lifton's, Indefensible Weapons, the essays of George Kennan, E.P. Thompson's analysis of the arms race that appeared in the nation, uh, the Kennan McNamara Bundy proposal in foreign affairs, um, about a no first strike um, policy, and so forth. Also, such films, The China Syndrome, Silkwood, uh, the, that film on ABC uh, about six months ago now, um, about you know, the end of uh, Nebraska and the day after. Uh, a similar scenario of a post-nuclear world um, has just appeared in a book called War Day, uh, which is, you know, it's propaganda, I guess you'd say, accountable what a relatively high level of survival would be like five years afterward. And it's written in the style of Sunday supplement journalism. Uh, it is, like the ABC film, likely to have that much more of an impact precisely on the popular mind, precisely because of its sentimental, gee whiz, how could we have done this to ourselves, tone and attitude. In short, at various cultural levels, uh, there has begun, uh, or in short, at various levels, uh, culture has begun to do its work of providing those images that enable us to 
to imagine uh, our lives, indeed to imagine the unimaginable, instead of leaving it to the Herman Kahn's to do so. The problem here, of course, is that the new, you know the, this whole kind of nuclear resistance movement, like most events in American life, runs that terrible mm -hmm. risk of having you know so little sustained concentration. You know Andy Warhol's line about you know everyone's going to be famous for ten minutes, which seems an overstatement, but that every cause is going to have like about ten days of intense you know attention and then kind of fade before the next cause comes down the road uh, seems to me fairly true. The one level, though, where this, this accession or even consciousness raising has been occurring, it seems to me, or is not visibly taking place, is the literary one. I'm not only talking about the absence of fiction, drama, poetry that begins to have the evocative power um, of John Hersey's Hiroshima, say, or the first hundred pages of Jonathan Shell's book, which seems to me, you know, hands down the most powerful writing, sustained writing that we've had about uh, what the fate of the earth is likely to be. Now and then a prophetic work like Russell Hoban's Ridley Walker or Volway Cannell's poem, uh, The Fundamental Project of Technology, um, or um, make us aware of what can be done in the way of a full and deep response to our probable future. But also they make us aware of how little, how relatively rare they are, how little work there has been of this kind of, of uh, impact and effect. Nor is prophetic work the only kind open to the literary imagination. I can imagine many novels, uh, like Arthur Coppett's new play, that deal really with uh, less with you know the event itself than, than the um, than the forces the human forces that are leading us to that event, i.e. the military industrial technological complex. And I see no reason why American fiction can't deal with that in the same way that writers of an earlier age dealt with the business trusts. Uh, Norman Mailer, where are you now that we need you again? Or Thomas Pynchon, or William Styron, or Allen Ginsberg, or those other voices, uh, erstwhile voices of our consciousness and conscience. customary to say that you've been uh, an attentive audience, but I think in this case it's uh, extraordinarily true. It's been uh, a long and demanding and I think valuable set of statements. Uh, rather than have any immediate exchange among panelists, I want to open things up to the audience. I want to say first that there has been a request uh, that Hans Koenig I think it has to do with curiosity. I, I, I agree with Grace Bailey that it has to do with the sweetness, with the problem solving. That the event, if, you, if you've studied uh, the, or, or looked at any of the films or talked to the scientists who, who were at the Trinity, uh, this was not just a big explosion. There was a rapture into this thing. And it's the component of the rapture and the allure that, 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 that qualifies this. It is not neutral. In certain aspects, the horror is that it's not a horror. 
That's what Reagan is talking about in Falwell. And it was just a component of it, and I didn't for a moment mean to suggest that I or Jonathan Shelb or anybody that I met said, we want it to happen. It's just that it's not neutral. And it colors it. Great. I, I really didn't mean this as a, um, an attack or anything like that. What I, what, what, uh, but I, but I, yes, I did. That's <laughs> 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 what's wrong with me. <laughs> I, what I, I, I mean it as, as an attack on that, uh, on that idea. I mean, the people, of course, they can't help it if they feel the allure of it, you know. You can't help it if you feel it. Um, but on, on the other hand, I, I, uh, I, I don't, I, it must start very early in people's lives, um, and, and I think it has to do with that kind of smartness and, and, uh, and uh, ed that particular kind of education, which is not, uh, I, I sound very puritanical, which is not a moral education at all. And, uh, and uh, uh, so I, I did feel like that about it, you know. You know, I, I could just add a, a word to that. Uh, it's what, what Arthur Copper was talking about was a kind of nuclear high. And the fact is that the uh, attraction to a nuclear high is widespread. You, you did see it depicted in sort of in the strange love syndrome, uh, especially in the film with, with the character going down with the bomb, riding it, literally straddling it in a wild Texas yodel. Uh, Maybe we could say, uh, in terms of what's been said here, both, both by Arthur Coppett and Grace Paley and also by Francine Gray, uh, yes, we do want to uncover the attraction and the allure. At the same time, can there be a stand taken by the writer and the artist in uncovering that? So much of the time there's confusion about whether, as, as even in Strange Love, is one really embracing it? Uh, hopelessly, or is one taking some sort of stand or position toward it? I just, just to say, but my other point really was, was we know about this, and I would like to start paying attention to the people on the other side who don't feel it, because I think there's, you know, millions of people who, who are not affected by it, who really, their spines don't tingle the least bit when they think about it, so that's all. There's a hand over there. Would you, would you please get up to the microphone and ask a question? I'm a, I'm a member of Penn, and I'm very grateful for, uh, that we're starting to discuss this. And uh, in response to what Grace Paley said, some other, I'm, uh, I'm involved in uh, the movement to end this. And uh, uh, I'd like to, I, I think we're in a, ter in a terrible moral crisis, the greatest moral crisis we've ever faced that it certainly surpasses the slavery crisis before the Civil War, and that the only response, we have to respond to this, not just as writers, but as human beings. We have to be prepared to go to jail. We have to be prepared, if necessary, to die in order to end this, this menace. Uh, many of my friends have been in jail a number of times. Uh, I refer to the plowshares groups. The first plowshares action start, uh, was in September 1980. This movement, although it has no publicity, no, but it is virtually un uncovered in the, in the uh, national press. When there's a trial, the Times devotes a paragraph in the regional news to it. Uh, there have been seven plowshares actions. Uh, 
the, uh, they all grew out of the first. Uh, almost all the people who were arrested and went to jail the first time have been involved in other plowshares actions. There are now about 60 or 70 people who've been arrested in four states in the east. There are other people who are protesting in, in other parts of the country. And uh, there's going to be, uh, on, I'd like to acquaint you with the fact that on April 28th at the community church, there's going to be a, uh, a meeting to support the, the latest plowshares group, which was at Griffiths Air Force Base, where a group of people went in with hammers. Uh, what plowshares means literally, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, uh, turning <coughs> swords into plowshares. And uh, at Griffiths Air Force Base, a number of people went in and uh, damaged a B-52 bomber, and they're now going to face a federal trial. At, uh, at April 28th, at Community Church, uh, there's going to be a meeting. You can meet some of these people. There'll be uh, Ramsey Clark, one of the lawyers who's going to defend them, is going to be there. A number of the defendants will be there. And the Berrigans, you can find out a lot more about it. And I hope some of you will come. And I'd just like to end with quoting from uh, the great words of Deuteronomy uh, that... Uh, Could you please limit the statement? Yeah. I, mean, I, I set before you life and death, uh, blessing and cursing. Choose life so that you and your descendants can live. Jane Ann Phillips wanted to respond to that. I think that uh, organizations such as Plowshares, and there are many, many organizations operating in all, in various parts of the United States that are basically concentrating on public acts that will at some point form a kind of advance guard in the media to support the kinds of ideas that we're talking about. But I think it's important, too, that we realize that, I mean, the nuclear freeze um, was a grassroots idea that took hold in town meetings. Um, and I think that one thing that we have to keep sight of is that things like voter registration and people getting people out to actually vote in the upcoming presidential election is one way, is one step to take. And it's something that does not alienate people. It's something that, I mean, I believe that, that actions like the plowshares actions should go on and must go on. But I think, too, it's very important that we not only as writers but as individuals do what we can to elect officials who are more supportive of our d ideas than those who are now in office. Does anybody on the panel... Could you please state your name, incidentally, from now on when you make... make sure, questions. Don Shim. Does anybody on the panel have a comment on the communications challenge put forth in the uh, Dyson book, uh, Weapons and Hope? Um, could you sort of phrase that challenge? Well, he talks about, I guess there's two challenges, not only ex communicating between the people in the military and the people in the peace movement, but also getting people to take a leap towards uh, reducing weapons, and he talks about you have to instill hope to get people to take that leap. To, to reduce the weapons? Yes. I don't know if this is what you mean, but um, actually the, uh, uh, the major disarmament work in the country right now is being really done by the plowshares. By that, I simply mean they're the only ones really disarming anything. That's, you know. They give a few bangs on those things. They're disarmed, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's only one at a time, though, unfortunately. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> but I, I think there are a lot of, lot of uh, difficulties with that. 
and uh, um, one, one of the ways that, uh, that, that I uh, uh, have seen people work at it really is, is simply by uh, going directly really to the people who make, who make this stuff and, uh, and, to the, uh, and to the factories where they're made. I don't know that I really quite understood what you were saying, but that would be my only way of responding to it. Well, yeah. I think the, the other part of the question, perhaps I can take yeah. a, an effort at responding to it. Uh, one part was hope, and you know, hope is a very central issue which is hard to legislate, impossible to legislate, and yet is central to everything that's done. And here I think we sense uh, in the whole society a struggle that's both theological and psychological to retain hope that may be as fundamental as anything we do or think or say, and one that can't be avoided by writers or artists. The point about communication, I haven't read the Dyson book, but I did have a chance recently to exchange ideas with him at some length. And one difficulty with the communications ideas that he puts forward is that he wants everybody to understand each other, the, the warriors and the anti-warriors, uh, whom he calls, I think, uh, unfortunately, the victims. Uh, mm -hmm. Things aren't all equal. I mean, it could be, for instance, that those who, are, who insist upon promoting the arms race are really wrong, uh, literally dead wrong, and that those who insist that the arms race be uh, in some way curtailed are absolutely right on at least that insistence. Uh, again, any writer or artist would have his or her sentiment and value in whatever one says about it. But the notion of just understanding each other, which is very strong in Dyson, I feel is dubious. <coughs> yes, to knowledge, but not necessarily equal value to uh, different groups and, and, and uh, sides. Yes. Please state your name and, and try to be... My name is Marshall Warshaw, and this is my first visit here, and I was very much uh, uh, impressed by uh, one or two speakers especially who spoke right on the subject. Uh, I, um, I, the way I look at it is that a writer uh, should give up his ivory tower right now in this, in this very, very momentous decision, which means life and death for all humanity, and I believe that the writer should not be misled by a word like propaganda, which has two edges to it, pro and con. I think that a writer should be committed at the present time to this whole world situation, which is a threat to all human life. I, I am a member of the Physicians for Social Responsibility, and I believe every, everyone here should join and should get the information that they give out. And uh, I have been following the work of the famous Carl Sagan, the astrophysicist of Cornell, what he pointed out is that the result of an atomic war would be that there would be one billion people who would be cremated. And the effect that the, uh, the uh, physicians for social responsibility show as a result of this would be that the rest who remain would have leukemia, cancer, and all the rest of it, which would mean a very limited life thereafter, and the earth itself would be radio radioactive and would not produce any food. So that uh, the, this would be actually the end of mankind. And the end of mankind would mean that it would not only wipe out those living, but wipe out the children who, who would not 
who would not, who would be, who would not have any offspring to continue mankind, and so that we can continue that in the casualties. These people who who, pro, who are protesting against abortion, this is the greatest abortion in the whole history of, of humankind. That we would have no future for mankind if the atom bomb took place. So, so I, all I say could is you, this: Could you cut your statement short? Please. My final statement is this: I personally am in favor of a movement throughout this country, not only of cons conservationists and preservationists, but pro prohibitionists, to prohibit the atom bomb. And I think the writers should take a very important stand in uniting in this movement to let Reagan and everybody else know, Russians and, and Americans know, that we are for the life of the people, that we want to preserve ourselves, and that we want to preserve our children and our future, and that therefore we are prohibitionists. We're against the atom bomb and everything that it entails. Thank you. Yes, go away. Well, I just wanted to... Uh, <clears throat> say that I agree with you about the, um, the fact that, well, in your opinion, that we should not worry about propaganda. Um, you know, when, um, Wilfred, when uh, Yeats was making his um, anthology of English poetry, he did not include the poems of Wilfred Owen because he regarded them as propaganda. Um, actually, those poems not only have uh, served a great usefulness uh, throughout their lifetime, especially during the Vietnam War, but they've also, uh, as art, survived um, many of the poems that Yeats thought were uh, great art. So that it's not always possible for us to know at the time we write something whether it is art or propaganda. <coughs> and sometimes um, uh, it's just better to write what one thinks is the truth and see what happens. Talk on, it's, it's about propaganda, because I know that I use the, uh, that word, and I think it's private to each, probably to each writer. And at some point you say, is this propaganda or not? Uh, when you write about this and you have, and it, and it matters to you, and you come upon it, you have to think, how, what is the most effective way? What are you trying to say, and how can be most effectively done? Uh, obviously, in, in uh, not obviously, but my play, there, there is a, a political position, a moral position. So how, what will be effective in this means? If, if writers can go out and write effective propaganda and can in any way not have, Reag have Reagan lose, then of course you do everything that you can. But, but in terms of the, what the artist must do, I think what we get here is that there is no one answer. If the, if the artist can make people, by whatever means, come to this issue in a new way, in a fresh way, and feel it and understand it, because this is an issue that people don't there is this enormous resistance. It is unthinkable, and, 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 and the consequences are beyond our comprehension. And so it's very easy to shut it out, and the people that I met shut it out very effectively, and I agree with Grace. The scientific mentality, like the surgeon, you, you depersonalize the entire thing. And anything that the writer can do to make us feel and to move and to act, of course, must be done. And if it is effective propaganda, that is fine. As a playwright, it is simply that was I was questioning in a very narrow scope, was it effective as a dramatist to write a play for an audience if it becomes mm -hmm. quite clear that I am professing a certain political position? That was the all I was wanted to come across. Yeah, the woman, uh, yeah, yes. I'm Daniela Giuseppe. I'm a member of Penn, and I work with the Coalition for a Nuclear-Free Harbor. 
Many New Yorkers are unaware that the next big buildup of the arms race is right here in our front yard in New York Harbor, where there'll be hundreds of cruise missiles worth 16 Hiroshima blasts each, small enough to fit under the, the table where the panelists fit, that look exactly like conventional weapons and will be deployed on surface action ships. These will be the gunboats of nuclear interventionism to be sent off the coast of Central America, the Philippines, and so forth. Um, and many people are still totally unaware that this is about to happen right here. We have a city council that voted a resolution for the freeze, and yet all of our Congress people, with the exception of Ted Weiss, are welcoming this nuclear Navy port with open arms. Of course, you have to do a little research to discover that the president of Grumman sat on Cuomo's economic development and fiscal development Please board. make the statement very briefly. So I just wanted to say that I think it's um, a problem when we go to write about this that we're, since we're all living in Jonestown drinking the cyanide, and we know that the Reverend Jones made everyone rehearse that over and over again, that we as writers are, we have the problem that we may be rehearsing the acceptance of the end of the world in our writing. And I agree with Grace that, that it's time for everyone to act in a real way. It has really nothing to do with politics. It has to do with survival. So that's why I find it so difficult to sit down at my typewriter and be tempted by immortality when I feel the end so closely upon me that I have to go out and go to the die-in that we held last Saturday in front of the Port Authority to protest this next big buildup and try to get the media there and the Times is blacking it out and not starting a debate on it. So I think that we as writers need to go to each other and all the editors we know to say, why isn't there a debate on this going on? So I, I would like you to address this problem of rehearsing the drinking of the cyanide in our writing. Uh, it isn't, thank you. It isn't that I'm hard-hearted and, and I'm in sympathy with much that has been said, but I have, to, yeah, I have to ask people to keep things brief just so that others can have a chance. Francine. No, I just want to uh, address the few points touched by several members of the audience and by Arthur Coppett. I, I feel that to, to deny the potential seduction and allure of these weapons to the specialists who, who are working on them and even to the devoted peace activists like Shell and Carpet who are writing about them, to deny that potential seductiveness is to undermine the movement because it is not to face the enemy squarely in the face. I think the seduction is there. I think it's part of, a, of, a, of something which, which any psychoanalyst could, could clearly explain. It is not to be disassociated from Thanatos, from the death wish. It is what, the, what we call the frisson or that that, that, that thrill of, of annihilation, and to deny both that basic human urge and to deny the fact that it is partly the seduction which produces the enemy that I'm trying to confront, because we don't want to be seduced. And what, what we're really all fighting is indifference more than anything else. Uh, it is that in a way the cons are less dangerous to me than the mass of people who refuse to face it and who, who sink into a level of indifference. I mean, that's what we all have to fight. And we cannot fight it if we do not see the potential allure 
of this whole technical world. Grace? I, I just say I can't stand it. Uh, I, I, um, I mean, I know it's there. It's not a question of denying it. It's there. We know it's there. So now we know it. So great. Well, um, that's all I have to say. <laughs> well, Grace, I think Francine was saying, and also Arthur, that if one confronts it, maybe we can do something about it or even get rid of it. Confronted it. I'm doing something about it. Okay. I confronted okay. it last week. <laughs> I want to. Is Hans Koenig here now? Uh, I want to call on him to make a statement he requested to make. Uh, I ask you to also please keep it brief. Thank you. Uh, I wasn't. I didn't ask to make a statement. If uh, very briefly, what happened was a month ago, Fenn asked me to write a little paper, and uh, they also told me at the time to be with it, uh, to come here with this paper at eight o'clock. But I won't read it, so that's why I'm late. But I won't, bear, I won't ask you to listen to the whole thing at this time. I'll just, if I may, be very briefly synopsize it. Uh, even more briefly about myself, I'm one of uh, a few writers who have pledged themselves not ever to write anything again, which is not somehow, however subtle or discreetly, bears on nuclear annihilation. Uh, I know this sounds sort of tiresome, and it's not something I suggest that other people should adhere to, but we feel that uh, a writer who has, doesn't have the sensitivity to feel that this is sort of the major thing at the moment may not be quite attuned to any other problem. Uh, I heard a lot of people, as I came in, talk about uh, the, the issue of politics and propaganda. I just want to add, if I may, that it seems to me that everything written is politics or propaganda in a sense, and a man who, or a woman who writes a novel about uh, a suburban marriage is a propagandist if she implies that we live in a normal world where that kind of problem is important. Um, I came, I uh, left, uh, I went to England shortly after the June 82 peace march, uh, on which we marched under the banner of WPA, if you remember some of you, that was the Writers and Publishers Against Nuclear War. And when I got to England, they were just sort of humming and hawing about starting uh, an anti-nuclear war writer's concern type thing. And luckily at the time I didn't know that nothing much had happened since that banner. So I talked about with great enthusiasm about what we were doing here. And actually Peter Mason tells me he may, the thing may come to life by itself anyway. But uh, partly inspired by that, the writers in England, all, all nationalities but all people writing in English, uh, founded BAND, <coughs> which stands for Book Action for Nuclear Disarmament. And uh, we presented ourselves to the public last fall with a 24-hour marathon read-in at Trafalgar Square, which sounds a bit gimmicky maybe, but it, it, it paid off because it got very much media attention. And 70 writers uh, wrote, uh, read about uh, fiction on fiction poetry bearing on nuclear war, mostly stuff we had written ourselves, also stuff of other people and CAPE is committed to put it out in a book. Uh, now there's one thing about BAND which may interest you. We decided at the start to include everybody connected with the book trade, including booksellers, mm -hmm. layout men, designers, everybody, which first of all meant that there was considerable trade union support. It was not just a little, quote, intellectual, unquote, thing. And it has very much helped uh, with the manifestations which are now taking shape. And Finally, then, a band would very much like to create a transatlantic 
a tie-in at least, or better even a, a, a complete uh, joint effort of all English-speaking writers to do just that. Thanks. Thank you, Thank you very much. <laughs> hand over there. My name is Anne Whitman. I'm very proud of my last name because I love Walt Whitman. Anyway, <laughs> I was appalled a few weeks ago when at my poetry workshop, when I delivered a poem about the 260 uh, Marines who were massacred in Lebanon, when the leader said, ideas get in the way of poetry and he is supposed to be a poet. However, I'm glad that so many people here don't agree with him. And uh, I just want to say that I, I've been writing against what's been going on. And uh, all credit to us and uh, all good work, that's all. Thank you. Could, could I just say a word about, about your workshop? <laughs> you weren't the leader now, where are you going? I, I was not the leader of that workshop, no. But um, it's actually a, a, an experience, the experience you had is not an uncommon one because there are certain conventions regarding uh, the writing of poetry in this country which, are, which almost prohibit the taking up the serious consideration of an idea. And so... Um, it's necessary. I, 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 lo I love the vow that uh, uh, Hans spoke of, that vow never to write anything that uh, in some way, even discreetly, doesn't uh, at least bring in some awareness that we live in this kind of world. Um, and what? Like I said, even suburban marriage. Even suburban marriage lives in that the world, first, right. The first she yeah. of the evening. Yeah. Because it does take an effort. It does take an effort to, um, to force oneself to go beyond the habits which are represented by the conventions of um, uh, how writing should be done. You know, to add to that, uh, on this issue more than any other, though it's true for everything, one has to question this absurd notion that developed somewhere in the history of Western thought that the heart and the mind are enemies and that one can only be passionate by diminishing ideas and that one can only have ideas if one cuts down passion. What worthwhile work of scholarship has ever lacked passion and what uh, moving expression of passion has lacked uh, in intellect? Really we need in this issue uh, more than any other uh, a combination of intellectual, intellectual rigor and appropriate passion. Yes. Hi, I'm Luciano Caruso, and I'm a playwright. Um, a few years back, um, Arthur Coppett spoke at my college graduation, and he said, um, plan your life to the minutest detail. You remember? <laughs> this is your interpretation. The only way the to know what you won't be doing. Your great closing line, it was terrific. A few years before that, I, um, I experienced um, a near-death experience. Um, I was clinically 
dead, I suppose, for um, almost 10 minutes. Um, not to go too far into that, just to make, just to say that, well, one thing, my, my IQ rose when I came back. Um, I don't know the connection there, but um, also, my writing no longer springs from my fear for my life or my fear from death, of death. And uh, I wanted to uh, ask Arthur in particular, and the, the panel uh, maybe with a wider scope, um, where do you think the writing on the nuclear issue lies with respect to, perhaps, all of our fear for our life or our fear of death? It, I, as, as a writer, I think that you have to come into it where you're making it real for yourself on whatever level, so that you're not, with the issue is so, it is the only issue. It doesn't is doesn't your understanding issue. of that inform your writing? Of course, of course, it does. And, and I think that you must avoid the easy statement, or if that's the only statement you make, make it. But, but uh, I, I think that it's, it's similar to anything that a, any writer does. You, you look at something and you say, that, what does the glass mean? What is my relation to that glass? I, want, I need to write about the glass. And so you examine the glass until you can make it as palpable to the person that you're talking about as not. And, and in this case, uh, the difficulty here is to make it real. We all know that it can happen, and yet we don't believe that it can happen. Uh, that's what my play ultimately is about, is, is, the, is the schism between knowledge and belief, what you know and what you believe, and how you deal with that. But that was only my approach. That's how I got into it, because I came to it as, as myself. This is what I was feeling. But. Uh, but I think it's, it's what writers always must do is you must make the work matter. Okay. I don't know that it's so important. Well, it is important to convince people that it can really happen. But I think you know, the issue of this War Day book is also something that we need to address. I mean, this book, at least from the description of it, is, is a totally irresponsible piece of writing that uh, purports that there will be a world after a total nuclear devastation that a mere five years later someone's going to be traveling around the country taping people's reactions to the change in their situation. This is a totally irresponsible kind of writing about nuclear war. Um, my, my basic feeling and my basic point is that you can't, uh, or at least I've never been able to decide what I was going to write about. I mean, I think you write about what is most compelling to you, and I think that there's almost nothing written that's any good that is not political. And I think that uh, there, there's an awareness that this shadow exists in almost anything good that's written, no matter how that is exhibited. But I think that it's important that we operate now not only as writers, but as individuals, as human beings, and that we can't be content simply to write. We have to take political action, whether it's plowshares or working on voter registration. We have to all do something. If we can write good propaganda, or if we can write good fiction that is particularly about the nuclear issue, fine. But I think we have to do more than that. It's, I mean, this is an election year. <laughs> I, I want to say, down in Washington, where my play is now, I, one of the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff came up after the play and looked around to make sure nobody was watching him. And he said, it's, if, if we can change this world, 
It's going to come from the people. It can't come from the politicians. It won't come from the scientists. It's going to have to come from the people. And he ought to know. He, he now has opted to play in golf. He's to maintain his sanity. I mean, we may not be able to imagine nuclear devastation. We, we, can't, we can't imagine it. We have no way of imagining. We can read Dante or, you know, this kind of thing. But it's not, we, it's not really imaginable. Let me suggest on that that Hiroshima is still a bit of a text for us. It's nothing like what would happen, but it is an event. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the actuality of using weapons, and we haven't absorbed what we can absorb from those experiences. Nonetheless, I don't disagree with what you say. On the issue of death, uh, you know, one distinction that has to be made is what Kurt Vonnegut calls plain old death, <laughs> meaning what we all face and, that, and we must accept, which we always do imperfectly, and grotesque, massive killing and dying by ourselves, of ourselves, through use of nuclear weapons, which we must reject. The difficulty, or there are many difficulties, but psychologically these two become interspersed, especially for young people. This may be the central impact of, uh, of the arms race on children in our society now, the confusion of just those two at early ages when there is the struggle to distinguish them or to learn what death is. But I, if I could just, I think the fact is that we don't accept death until we absolutely have to. I mean, we, we accept it in the, ten, I mean, if it's a car crash, we accept it in the 10 minutes uh, in which we experience it. If we're told that we have an illness, we experience it in the three months or two years or five years or whatever, that we live with that illness. But the fact is, in, in terms of the nuclear devastation, we're not going to have any time to sort of think yeah. about it. Though, um, though it also has to be said that it looks as though, in this society, the imp one of the impact one of the forms of impact of nuclear weapons has been to get us to begin to look at death, as has happened in this society over the last 10 or 15 years, at least more than ever before, mm -hmm. inadequately, but with various groups, writers writing about it, various psychological and uh, studies of the dying patient and concerns about death. It may be that across the board our capacity stays limited, but there are there are ebbs and flows, and it could be the, the strange irony that the nuclear weapons issue has brought us back to death in a beginning way. I must say, I don't think so. I think it's brought us to despair, and that has to do with the kind of political stasis that we're experiencing. Well, How can we know enough about so mass annihilation? Someone else now. The, the, another, another, there's a hand in the back there. Thanks very much. Well, it seems you're talking about propaganda. And I would, I've been reading, I'm a great fan of Jonathan Swift's. And he wrote uh, letters called the Drapier Letters where he actually got Irish people to do things. Now, I just want to know, do you think there's any room for a uh, humorist in this movement? Absolutely. Room is a desperate need. There's no room. Yes, the yes, answer was a resounding yes. 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 Oh, no, no, the answer was laughter. The answer was laughter. Okay. <laughs> Didn't you get it? <laughs> Hi, my name is Paul DeAngelis. I'm an editor at E.P. Dutton. I'd like to address this question to Francine Gray. Um, this question of uh, the association of nationalism with uh, the nuclear issue, especially regarding France. It seems to me that... Uh, the uh, ability to have nuclear weapons is taken by some countries, including France, as maybe the only 
uh, Western country, but also places like India and China, as somehow tied up with, uh, with their nationalism. And even in the case of Germany, the, the, uh, a lot of the fuel behind the, uh, the idea of eliminating that, uh, nuclear weapons uh, seems to be related to their idea of reunification. Now, in the case of France, where you have a socialist government, which basically is denouncing the Reagan policies on Nicaragua, on Central America, which has generally been in agreement with most uh, liberal movements in this country, and yet seems to be totally on the other side on the case of nuclear weapons, how would you uh, account for that, and how would you um, be able to start a dialogue with people like, like the, uh, the intellectuals in France who seem to be like André Glucksmann, who seem to like the force de frappe? I really, I have not been in France enough in the past years to answer that, to answer that the way you would like it to be answered. Um, I do feel that there is a, an extremely cynical streak in the French character, which, um, <laughs> which uh, we know from the literature and which, which perhaps makes them more resistant to a, 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 a protest movement um, I think also that a nation which, which has been occupied and which has survived a war, and I mean, I remember I as a child being in occupied France and the, the village in which I was, I was living with being bombed and I saw being people being killed and the building in which I was standing uh, went up in flames and the sense that I survived that uh, survived a war which went on to be a holocaust of um, uh, 12 million people. Now, by, by the way, I think we're also forgetting to ask the question, to what degree is there a relation between the holocaust of, of Jews in World War II and the possibility of a future holocaust? I think we have not addressed that for, maybe for another time. I think it's essential to link the two. The two are indissoluble, and I think it's irresponsible to not address it. But the French lived through on the verge of that Holocaust, and perhaps the fact that they survived occupation uh, makes them, gives them the illusion that they can, that they survived in, a, in form a Holocaust uh, on the edge of it, that they can survive another Holocaust. You see what I mean? If you are of age, and anybody over 45 is in Europe, in the occupied countries, who went through the experience of being bombed, losing a father or mother in the war as I did, having your cousin shipped out to Dachau and uh, never see them again, all which happened to most of my friends. You just have a different kind of, um, it's not that you're less of an activist, but you've been touched in some way, which is hard to explain. The last thing I will say, I mean, I'm sorry that I can't technically answer the question by the force de frappe, but that that degrees of attitudes vary greatly within the European nations. And one of the most terrifying and also ironic ones was one that I came across in Italy some months ago when um, seeing that the missiles were being placed right there in Sardinia, I asked an Italian who's been a journalist for 30 years, uh, I asked him how come this is the only country in the Western Bloc in which there is no uh, anti-nuclear protest movement, it barely exists. Well, it very compared to Germany, compared to England, it's extremely small. He was talking about its very smallness. And he said, because we know they won't work. Those weapons won't work. He said, 
Nothing works in this country. The trains don't work. The cars don't work. Therefore, why should your weapons work? I'm just saying that there is a large difference to be made within each different country, which has to do with the kind of experience it went through in World War II. You know, I, I, I know of an American uh, comment that can even top that one, Francine, in which uh, one can only hear it on the campuses, of course, and I've heard it all too often in, that, in those places, and it's something like this. Well, what's so special about the human species? Others have come and gone, and that's the ultimate uh, above-the-battle uh, withdrawal from the issue. In, in response to Jane Ann Phillips, I would say, yes, there's tremendous despair that has taken shape in this country. On this issue, as on perhaps some others, despair is a luxury. Despair is a luxury. Well, could I just say one thing? I think that in, when you're talking about individual death experiences, one's first reaction is a sort of all-embracing appreciation of life and a real drive toward it. Um, on the other hand, the cultural and, I mean, the basic national response to nuclear extinction has not been a greater appreciation of life, uh, more political action. So far, it has been a kind of stasis, and this is, to me, a basic and very dangerous I, I, difference. I, I, I just have to say, I don't, I don't really think that's, that's true. Um, I, uh, first of all, I think, one of the things I just want to say is when we talk about now we have to start operating as individuals, I just, <clears throat> I, I know the, the, I mean, I stand behind you on that statement, except that I don't think we have to start operating as individuals. We really have to start working in groups. Uh, we really have to uh, um, really, really work with each other on this and, and gather and meet and, uh, and, uh, and uh, write letters together because nobody writes letters separately, unfortunately. <clears throat> the other thing is this, that uh, I've been traveling around the country a lot, and I really don't find, I don't find that there's that much quietness in, in places. I, I find that, 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 that uh, students are beginning to, uh, to, uh, uh, to come to meetings in great numbers, and, uh, and particularly, one of the things I just want to mention is, <coughs> is, uh, is, are these very town meetings that we've talked about before, where, where people uh, act in a very, um, um, uh, uh, common and specific way, and where uh, and where um, uh, a group of people decided to re withhold their taxes from the uh, from the um, federal government and give it to the town, and say we like you town, you're a very nice town, you remove snow, you do everything good, <laughs> but uh, the federal government is doing very bad things with this money. I just want to say that this was a town in Vermont, but it, uh, a good deal of work was done on this. Uh, but in a very short period, about 10 days, uh, when they decided to take this $600 of withheld money and turn it over to the town. When the vote happened, uh, they lost, we lost, but we lost by 89 to 81. So uh, I think you, that's, a, and, and tax resistance is a very um, advanced kind of idea and the scarier to most people than uh, lots of other more frightening things. So keep that in mind, that was one of the most, being encouraged. Well, I, I think what, what Grace is saying, among other things, that one has an avenue out of the despair if one can find a mode of action. Uh, one, one is stuck in the stasis of despair uh, if that's all one has, as opposed to some kind of act uh, against the threat that, that exists. Uh, I'm, I just, yeah. Can I just make a point? Um, 
You know, I, I really don't think that, that despair is, is the, the prevalent mood of, of the American public. Um, I think the prevalent mood of the American public is, as it's almost always been, one of innocence. Um, Nick von Hoffman tells a story of, you know, he gives, he lectures on campuses, and at some point in his lecture, he'll say, all of you who think that America would never be the first country to use a nuclear weapon, raise your hands. And almost to a man and woman, the hands go up. And as they're held there, he says, now I want you to very carefully consider what you have just believed. And if you have cha changed your mind, lower your hand. And of course, within you know 30 seconds, all the hands come down. But it's that tendency to raise that hand. And the great need, I think, of those of us who try to communicate with the public to begin to get them to lower that hand, that I think is really the task of the um, this before us. One final question. Yes. Um, I, my name is Ann Moody, and I'm a member of Penn. I'd just like to say that just on Thursday of last week, I had a colloquium with some students at Stony Brook. And a lot of the things you said, uh, Grace, reminded me of some things. I quoted from a book that I was reading at the time, and I had just read this quote on the train before I got off at Stony Brook. And the quote is from Celine, and I won't tell you the book, but the quote is this. It says, a lot of things, a lot of very cruel things have got to happen to a fool before he can change his thought. And I asked the students to just substitute fool for country and think like this. A lot of things, a lot of very cruel things have got to happen to a country before it can change its thought. And I suggested to them that if they really wanted to do something about the nuclear issue, the best thing that we could do coming up with this election is to get Ronald Reagan re-elected. Because once, listen to what I'm saying, because once he's re-elected, once he has had his limited nuclear war, once he has done push the button to a certain degree, then we as writers sitting up here trying to figure out what it's like to imagine what a nuclear war will be, we will have the evidence we need and then maybe we can write about it. <laughs> maybe. I take all of your presence here to be an act of hope. I really want to thank the panelists and the audience. You've all been wonderful. Stay with it. And now finally, Karen Kennelly wants to make an announcement for Penn. It's, just, a, it's a, just social announcements, really. One is that there is a reception downstairs in the bar for all of you after right now. And the other is that you've all had a Xerox of this invitation on your seats. Anyone who would like to buy tickets for the Forbidden Riders evening, please see Pamela Pierce at the back of the room. She's selling them now. Thank you.